Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyds Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. So welcome to our last episode of the year. It was supposed to be a festive one. We were planning on looking back on 2022, focusing on some of our highlights. Now we'll still do that at the end of today's episode, But there was one huge story that broke this week in the EU. And that's a corruption scandal unlike any other that we've seen here in a long, long time. The news over the past days looked like a bad Netflix film. Money laundering. Payoffs. Corruption. Kickbacks. Bags of cash. Bribes. Criminal organisation. Shame on you. It's the ugly truth of high-level corruption at the heart of the European democracy. Make no mistake, the European Parliament, dear colleagues, is under attack. European democracy is under attack. And our way of open, free, democratic societies are under attack. Starting last Friday, Belgian police conducted at least 20 raids in Brussels, recovering bags of cold hard cash in three different locations. Belgian police found €600,000 in a private home in Brussels, several hundred thousand euros in a suitcase at a Brussels hotel room and €150,000 in an apartment owned by an MEP. In total, police say they have recovered over €1.5 million. Raids at offices in the European Parliament also saw computers and IT equipment being seized. Six people were originally arrested in Brussels and four of them charged. That's in addition to separate arrests in Italy. The allegation centres around cash payments to individuals by a third country, widely reported to be Qatar, an accusation that Qataris deny. Among those charged, and at the centre of the controversy, is a former member of the European Parliament, an assistant working for members of the European Parliament, a trade union boss, and one of the European Parliament's very own vice presidents, Eva Kaili. Kaeli, who hails from Greece, says she's innocent. Her lawyer told Greek TV that she has nothing to do with bribery from Qatar. At the time of recording, she remains in prison in Brussels and is due back in court next week. But the fallout in Brussels and around the EU has been monumental. The European Parliament was in session this week in Strasbourg and it voted to remove Kaili as one of the body's 14 vice presidents. First of all, we will vote on a proposal from the Conference of Presidents for the early termination of the office of our vice president of the European Parliament, Ms Eva Kaili. 
In accordance with Rule 21... Her political group, the Socialist and Democrats, expelled her, as did her own political party in Greece. Vote is closed. And the vote is carried. We move next... Meanwhile, more offices in the European Parliament, both in Brussels and Strasbourg, were sealed off by security services. Green MEP Hannah Neumann captured the mood during a debate in the European Parliament on Tuesday. We are all standing in the middle of a crime scene with offices sealed, colleagues in prison, confronted with the allegation that at least one of us has become a Trojan horse of corruption and foreign interference. This saga, like something out of a political thriller, has made international headlines. People in this country are going to say, what do I care about what's happening in the European Parliament? I feel like he needs to break it down. Yeah, you need to break this down. Because people don't understand like, how the European Parliament is broken down and why she's such a key figure, because she's like a VP, right? right? She's pretty high ranking. Yeah, I think there are people within Europe who want to understand how the European <laughs> Parliament works. <laughs> Will the European Parliament be able to recover from such a scandal? And big question, is this just the tip of the iceberg? I'm Suzanne Lynch, Political's Chief Brussels Correspondent, and needless to say, this is one heck of a way to end a remarkable year in Brussels. Later, as I mentioned, our Editor-in-Chief, Jamil Anderlini, will join the show to discuss the top stories of 2022, along with our Senior France Correspondent, Clea Calcutt. Biggest land war in Europe in 80 years. It's been kind of a relentless news schedule, if anything, I would say. I mean, the war overshadows everything. It's really the, the sort of starting point of some of the big, great stories that we've, that we've had this year. You'll also hear from the EU's top watchdog, Ombudsman Emily O'Reilly, about what can be done to shore up the EU's ethics rules in light of the latest scandal. But first, let's dive into the issue that is dominating discussion here in Brussels this week, and that is the alleged corruption scandal at the heart of the European Parliament. I'm joined by our chief policy correspondent and author of our EU Influence newsletter, Sarah Wheaton, our senior trade correspondent and expert on all things Belgium, Barbara Munz, and our assistant news editor and in-house political sports expert, Ali Walker. So, Sarah, I've just outlined the very basics of this story for our listeners. And there's been a lot of focus, rightly, on the European Parliament's vice president, one of those vice presidents, Eva Kaili. Who is she and what do we know about Qatar's alleged attempts to influence her? Well, Eva Kaili is a 44-year-old former journalist. And uh, she's actually, one of the things that makes this story fun for us is she's actually pretty glamorous, especially by Brussels standards. She's sort of a tabloid level celebrity in her home country of Greece. And um, she is dating. She is a partner with and a co-parent with an Italian parliamentary assistant named Francesco Giorgi. And he is also under arrest. He's linked to um, a former MEP named Antonio Panzeri. And and as far as we can see, just from the public record, Eva Kylie has been very vocal in her advocacy of Qatar. She has gone out of her way to push for them to have a visa waiver for Qatari citizens to enter the Schengen area. When the parliament did a big resolution kind of calling into question Qatar's labor reforms, she actually went to the floor and said that Qatar is a forerunner in labor rights. 
Today, the World Cup in Qatar is a proof, actually, of how sports diplomacy can achieve a historical transformation of a country with reforms that inspired the Arab world. I alone said that Qatar is a front runner in labor rights, abolishing kafala and reducing minimum wage, despite the challenges that even European companies are denying to enforce these laws. She also visited Qatar uh, not long ago in the lead up to the World Cup, met with the labor minister and again praised Qatar's labor reforms. And that is a huge public relations coup for the country. Fascinating. There are also many other people involved in this scandal, though, as well. Can you give us a rundown of some of the others that are involved in this? Right. So there's the former MEP Antonio Panzeri, and he started an NGO called Fight Impunity after he left parliament in 2019. And the people that we're seeing get picked up have some sort of link to that NGO. Um, we're also seeing from Italian media that the arrest warrant weren't for Panzeri's wife and daughter includes not just Qatar, but also having some sort of corruption uh, related to Morocco. And we're still learning about exactly what might have been done, how money was exchanged, if at all. But the bottom line is um, the Belgian police have been putting out pictures of suitcases full of cash. Some of it was found in Kylie's father's suitcase. Some of it was found in her house. We think some of it was found at Panzeri's. And so um, there's quite a web around this former MEP. Yeah, and we, we reported on that during the week, this a kind of arrest warrant, essentially, for Panzeri's wife and daughter. Um, and some of the details in that were quite extraordinary. Anybody else that's been, uh, these tentacles are touching? We're starting to see other MEP assistants who worked for um, either the Subcommittee on Human Rights, which Panzeri used to run, or people who used to work for his NGO. A few other names, we um, have been in Italian media and we haven't quite been able to confirm them, but there's another NGO called No Peace Without Justice. The head of that, we believe, is is still in custody. Somebody who was released is a person named Luca Vicentini, and he was the head of this major European trade union, now the head of an inter national trade union. And we're still, he um, has given some interviews, basically said, yes, he worked with this NGO Fight Impunity on some human rights reports, but he had no idea that there was anything fishy going on. Um, We'll see if the police believe him in the end. Absolutely. So Barbara, what can you tell us about the Belgian side of things? So it's, it's the Belgian authorities that are running this investigation. Yeah, exactly. So Belgium as host country of the EU and of the international institutions like NATO are in charge when it comes to not just counterintelligence, but also the legal side of things. And so what we know from the prosecution so far is that this investigation has started about four months ago and that now we have a federal investigative magistrate, which is very similar to the the role of a U.S. public prosecutor, who is now running the prosecution. Someone that is very well known in the Belgian justice world, uh, Michel Claes. We did a profile um, just now on him, which shows how much international cases he has actually been affiliated with and also won. And he's very much known in Belgium as someone that pushes through and is not afraid to back off. So that will promise to be interesting in the next coming days and weeks. Yeah, fascinating. And Sarah, I mean, what other implications has this had? And we've had seen some resignations in the European Parliament. I mean, this all happened this week, just as the Parliament was gathering in Strasbourg for its final plenary session. So, for example, you mentioned there this visa-free agreement that was in the works. The Parliament was due to vote on that. What's the status now? Right, so... 
both uh, Qatar and Kuwait were due um, to see a long-running deal on getting visa-free access to the Schengen zone kind of sail through. There was already general agreement. That's now been kicked back to committee, and pretty much all Qatar files have been frozen. We also saw that a deal for Qatar Airways to access European airspace, that had pretty much already been done and dusted. And uh, now we're seeing the lead MEP on that committee basically say, hey, let's hold off on this ratification because we're concerned that there was interference. So um, we should note that the Qatari government has denied any involvement in any of this. They say that any of their interaction is totally above board. But whatever happened, it's definitely backfiring on Qatar because it's just even things that were going to happen that were not really very controversial. Now everybody is saying it can't. Absolutely. Coming to you, Ali, on this issue of Qatar, this is all obviously happening during the final days of the World Cup in Qatar. How do you read this? You've been covering the World Cup side of this for some time. Yeah, I mean, the timing is extremely interesting. From the very start, uh, this World Cup has been kind of mired in corruption and uh, bribery allegations. Qatar has always denied it did anything um, improper to win hosting rights for the tournament. But it's, it's just kind of remarkable that the week of the World Cup final, which takes place on Sunday, that another corruption scandal has exploded in relation to this country, this time with the EU. As I understand it from talking to people in Doha, this is a big, is a hot topic in political circles over there. As we have written about, as I have reported, you know, lots of top politicians have attended this World Cup, have attended matches. I think Emmanuel Macron was attending, um, Anthony Blinken was there, you know, some of the world's top figures have been in Qatar because... You know, I I wonder how much uh, this really affects the top politicians in the West and the EU because, you know, Qatar is too strategically important for them at the moment, given we need a new reliance. And I mean, Um, you you also, Ali, it was fascinating. You wrote as well a story running up to the World Cup. You met with one of the Belgian MEPs who's been involved in this. Tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, that was interesting. I had lunch two weeks before the tournament with Marc Tarabella, a Belgian socialist MEP whose home was raided by Belgian police on Saturday night. He was not um, charged. His home was just raided, yeah. Indeed, he yeah. was not charged and he has not yet been questioned by police. Uh, but he has, over the last decade, undergone a transformation from being one of Qatar's biggest critics in the EU to now being one of its biggest uh, promoters. And in this lunch... I had a burger, he had a salmon-based salad. We had a nice time, lasted an hour and a half. But he was extremely positive about uh, Qatar and the reforms he says it has made in the last few years in the run-up to the World Cup. He kept saying the time for criticism is past. This is the time to look forward uh, positively about what Qatar has done. And I thought the most interesting thing he said was that Qatar really has become a model for the rest of the neighborhood to the Gulf, the rest of the Gulf region to follow, which, you know, after what started last Friday and has blown up over the last few days is really uh, quite a striking remark. I mean, that's one of the issues that has struck me at the very time when the EU is locked in a very tense discussion with some of its own members, namely Hungary, about rule of law and democracy issues. It is such bad PR for the European Parliament now to be facing a corruption scandal of this magnitude within its ranks. I mean, it's we already heard Viktor Orban uh, this week 
coming out and trolling essentially the European Parliament about this. I mean, Sarah, look, you've been covering these kind of issues a long time. Are you surprised this has happened? Not really. Mm. I mean, I I think the thing that I'm surprised about is the lack of subtlety, the lack of finesse in this. Like these people are not the people who are involved. As I said, everybody was scratching their head when Ava Kylie was making some of these comments. So we like to think that, you know, there's some secret conspiracy to pull strings. And instead, you know, the people who are tied up in this are people, same with Panzeri when he was in the in the Human Rights Committee. These were people who were very vocal defenders of Qatar. And I've been having some conversations, you know, with um, with people in the parliament. And it is normal for, uh, and, and legal, certainly, for people to have unconventional or controversial positions. And this is going to create a situation where, now, whenever somebody kind of has a view that's a little bit outside of the mainstream or the mainstream of their party, people are going to wonder if they're on the take. So I think it will require um, lawmakers to explain themselves a lot more. Yeah. And I think it's not just the European Parliament, right? Obviously, it's very embarrassing for the Parliament specifically because they do claim the moral high ground when it comes to human rights, rule of law externally and internally. But I think for a lot of people outside the bubble, they don't really make the distinction right between the European Parliament or other EU institutions. So it threatens to shed a bad light on on the EU in general, on politics in general. Yes, very true, Barbara. I mean, Sarah, where do we stand in terms of the EU's rules around transparency? We're going to hear from the EU Ombudsman, Emily O'Reilly, a bit later about the need for an overhaul. Do you agree? Where do things stand in terms of these transparency and ethics issues? Well, transparency activists have been calling for quite a long time for more rules. And that's part of why I was saying I wasn't necessarily that surprised um, that this played out because they've been warning that this would be what happens. Um, And in Parliament, there isn't really a good way to enforce the guidelines that they have and to make sure that people are following the rules. And so there has been a push by both some members of Parliament and activists to have an independent ethics body that could take on this function. And even just a few weeks ago, the commission said, look, we tried to come up with a proposal. There's not a clear legal path. There's not actually that much appetite. But now suddenly this week, in response to this, we've heard Commission President von der Leyen say, we need to have something that applies to all institutions, no exemptions. For us, it is very critical to have not only strong rules, but the same rules also covering all the European institutions and not to allow for any kind of exemptions. So it's a matter We heard Commission Vice President Margarita Skinas say we need to have something with teeth. So I will be very curious if they can actually overcome these obstacles, especially the legal ones, which, you know, aside from the politics, might be an authentic obstacle. Yeah, very good point, Sarah. I mean, look, guys, we're here in our in our studio in our political offices in Brussels. I mean, what a week. Uh, what, what are you hearing around the corridors here? Do you think this really is a big deal? <laughs> I see you smiling, Barbara. What do you think? I mean, you've been covering the EU for a while, but this is pretty big. I think it's huge, and I think we don't yet know what all the implications are. Also, because clearly the investigation is still on their way, so there might be more coming, right, from yeah. the Belgian side of things. There are a lot of questions, right? Did they just target the Social Democrats? That might not really be that smart. Did they target other institutions? That's the political group of which Kylie is a part, yeah. Exactly. So I think those questions, but also, yeah, like I said, the question about the integrity of our political system 
both in Europe and in some of the national governments, I think the fallout of this will be huge. And I think that a lot of EU politicians and officials are very much aware of this. And I don't know what your feelings and conversation are, but everybody knows this is bad. Yeah, very good point about the national capitals there, Barbara. I mean, we heard that this week from the EU leaders that were here at the European Council summit. I mean, usually the European Parliament takes a back seat when it comes to European Councils. The president uh, usually kind of gives a, a briefing to leaders. She gives a press conference, but it's very much a sideshow. But this week, it was all about Qatar. Any thoughts, Ali? Well, the other interesting note here is that while the European Parliament has been the one in focus this week, there is also a commission link uh, to this story. Uh, he is not accused of doing anything wrong, but uh, you know, Vice President Margarita Skinas was at the World Cup opening ceremony as a representative of the EU. And he has come in for a bit of scrutiny um, from MEPs and other figures, including us, you know, over some of the re- pro-Qatar remarks yeah. that he has made over the last month. He, of course, says, you know, I'm merely expressing the opinion of the entire European Commission. And I definitely didn't take any uh, gifts from And Qataris he did say that. Yeah, exactly. And, um, and, and the Commission and, frankly, some of those in the Parliament keep saying, oh, we're just saying what the International Labour Organization said, the ILO. So, mm-hmm. look, I mean, he gave that press conference in Strasbourg earlier this week, which we'll hear from now. This is the European Commission. We are not improvising. We are not inventing positions. So I religiously, scrupulously reproduced Commission policy. And on the infamous or famous issue of labor reform, I reproduced not only Commission policy, but ILO policy, which has uh, an office of 40 people, 30 people in Doha, who were the first people I saw upon landing there. Any final thoughts, Sarah? What a week. I'm exhausted. (laughs) We are all exhausted. We are, we are. But it's great you could join us here in the Politico podcast studio for our final podcast of the year. To Sarah, Barbara and Ali, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Suzanne. Thank you, Suzanne, and uh, thanks for having me on. Now, as Sarah mentioned, there are big questions swirling around at the moment regarding the transparency of EU institutions. Earlier this week, I caught up with European Ombudsman Emily O'Reilly, the EU's top watchdog, to discuss the fallout from the scandal. So first of all, what's your response to this news that has emerged over the last few days and the arrest of at least one member of the European Parliament? Well, I I think the story has has a long way to go and due process has to happen as well. But I mean... um, The facts of it uh, just seem uh, fairly serious and certainly the reaction of Parliament and the other institutions and indeed other uh, actors uh, in the EU administration has been uh, very strong, very interesting. I mean, once again, it seems that it's going to take a scandal for things to change. I dipped in and out of what was happening in Parliament today and uh, to a certain extent, one could have written the script. Everybody's horrified. Everybody's now going to do their best to stamp it out and put things in place to make sure that things like this can't happen and so on. When the truth is, whether myself or other civil society actors, media, other politicians have been saying for years that there are problems uh, in the ethical system of the EU administration. And, you know, while incremental change has, has happened and it's to be welcomed, there's never the big leap 
And I was thinking about this today, and I think really we need to reframe it. And instead of talking about, you know, ethical oversight or anything like that, we need to talk about it in terms of risk management. And I think that would really change the play. Uh, because, for example, I'm sure that the Commission and other in the Parliament have you know, no end of people in charge of cyber security and making sure cyber attacks don't happen. And I doubt if the people who are involved in that area of, of, of managing the risk of cyber attacks sit back and wait for attacks to happen. They'd be constantly scanning the horizon to see where the gaps are. And then they will be asking for resources and and anything else they need in order to patch those gaps. So I think if you see what is alleged to have happened or the cause of what has happened over the last few days, if you see that through the prism of managing risk, then I think you can change the conversation. And I think I, I think you can move things along because either the EU is naive or I don't know what other word I would use, but I mean, it is a huge global player. And of course, People from you know everything from tech companies to you know states outside the EU are going to try and influence it um, to assist them in whatever their particular agenda is. And sometimes the way they're going to do that is through attempting to corrupt the people within it. And whether that happens in the cartoon-like way that it happened, it's alleged to have happened over the last few days, literally bags of cash, or whether it happens in more subtle forms of lobbying, and I would include revolving doors in that, all of that should be seen through the prism of minding the business by managing the risk. So what's been the problem here? I I know President von der Leyen, the head of the commission, said back right at the beginning of her mandate, she, she tasked one of her commissioners with coming forward with a kind of a pan-European regulatory body. What's gone wrong here? Why hasn't this progressed? It hasn't happened because people don't want it to happen. That's why things don't happen, you know. So whether it's people in the commission, whether it's, uh, you know, member states, certain member states in the council who don't want it to happen. But for things to happen, you need you need political champions. <laughs> Sometimes you need a scandal. Yeah, yeah, you need a you know a big bang in the middle of all of this, and suddenly everybody is, is is seized by the issue and wants to change. And I think President von der Leyen, I mean, I think she made that commitment around the time that she was looking to be accepted by Parliament to be the Commission president, and she was trying to engage with groups. Understandably, I mean, this is politics uh, that would have had that so those sort of transparency ethical issues on their agenda. So she puts that out and what we seem to have ended up with or what we might be inching towards is something with with no teeth, something that'll sort of probably sit there, possibly sit there passively, wait for complaints to come in. And even if they find that that the complaints are are founded, very few powers of sanction and and also more critically investigatory powers. I mean, that is, even though I, I, as ombudsman, can't make, don't make binding uh, recommendations, at least I can see everything I need to see. But there's also something else, Suzanne, in relation to this that struck me today. I mean, it also goes to the, the old Watergate mantra of follow the money. I mean, the Belgian police reportedly literally followed the money. Now, it's rare that you would have something as explicit as that. But sometimes when I'm dealing with cases around revolving doors or that that whole issue, which, you know, in some cases globally can can border on effectively corruption. I, you know, I, I always think the thing that's missing here, the one element that's missing here that would really pe- have people sit up and take notice about this as an issue is if we knew how much money people were getting. So I suppose you're calling here for an entire overhaul of how the EU regulates itself. Yeah, I mean, I think you have to start with a big question. 
And to date, the administration has not been seized of the big idea, which is that ethics isn't just a thing for worthy nerds and, you know, you know, nosy Parker civil society organizations. Ethics also means protecting the business of the EU administration. And I would have thought today as well that when you have Viktor Orban laughing at you on Twitter, that's also a risk. Because the risk there is that when the EU administration has been trying to deal with, you know, Hungary and Poland and in, in relation to certain matters, look at what this gift that has been given to them. It's not the fault of, of the EU administration, you know, individuals who, who who are involved in this. But by constantly by not really grasping the seriousness of these issues, they allow the space for scandals to happen. I'm not saying they cause the scandals, but they allow that space and the possibility of scandals to happen. And then people who are hostile to the EU or have a sort of an anti-EU agenda for whatever reason can then say, well, yeah, don't lecture us about corruption. Don't lecture us about ethics. You know, clean up your own house first. Well, there'll be plenty more on this story for some time to come, no doubt. In the meantime, you can follow our coverage at politico.eu. Now, it's time to have a look back at the year that was in conversation with our France correspondent, Clea Colcott, and our editor-in-chief, Jamil Anderlini. We'll be right back. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. A message from Lloyd's Banking Group. Lloyd's Banking Group has championed social housing for decades. It provides finance, expertise, and guidance to more than 340 housing associations across the UK. These range from small local associations of several hundred homes to much larger regional associations responsible for tens of thousands of properties. Each has an important role to play in their community to help people find a safe place to call home. Improving access to quality and affordable homes is central to Lloyds Banking Group's commitment to helping Britain prosper. That's why Lloyds Banking Group is calling for one million more homes to be made available for social rent over the next decade. 2022 is the year that war returned to the European continent. As a result, the EU and European countries have made historic shifts in policy that no one could have predicted a year ago. We'll be joined by our colleague in France, Clea Colcott, in just a few minutes. But first, to look back at 2022, I'm joined by Political Europe's Editor-in-Chief, Jamil Anderlini. Hi, Jamil. Hi, Suzanne. Great to have you with us. Um, listen, we thought we would have a look back on the year that was um, and look at some of the highlights of what's happened, some of our coverage. I mean, what stands out to you, Jamil? I mean, Ukraine, of course, a big story. Yeah, I mean, I moved here just over a year ago. And uh, when I left Asia, where I used to be based, I remember some colleagues in, in media saying, oh, Brussels, Europe, how boring. You're moving to a news desert. What are you thinking? And I got a little bit worried. And I have to say, it certainly isn't our problem in Brussels or Politico Europe at all. 
biggest land war in Europe in 80 years. It's been kind of a relentless news schedule, if it anything, has. I would say. I mean, the war overshadows everything. It's really the the sort of starting point of some of the big, great stories that we've that we've had this year. But now, obviously, we have this this other one, which you know, no news organisation is as well placed to cover corruption in the European Parliament. Parliament than, scandal, than the Qatar scandal. Abs- yes, absolutely amazing. It's a huge story. And you know, us journalists, as, as you know as well as I, we have short-term memories. So, I mean, just in the last couple of weeks, some of the stories we've done have just been absolutely brilliant. The story of the Mr. Privacy, the founder of French Google, who's turned to cyber surveillance. So tell us a bit more about that story, Jamil. Yeah, so just in the last couple of weeks, we published a five-part investigation which looked into a man called Eric Leandre, who was the was co-founder of a company called Quant, which is effectively was known at the time as French Google. This man, Eric Leandre, was really seen as a champion of digital privacy, a paragon of Europe's ability to compete against Silicon Valley. He's been endorsed by many powerful people, famous politicians across Europe, in particular in France. And what we discovered, based on access to a trove of documents that we saw, we really worked out what his new company is doing, and that is cyber surveillance using mostly open source information, but working for governments, selling cyber weapons, or working with other companies to sell cyber weapons to um, non-democratic governments in Africa, working with some of the biggest names in French business and the corporate world, really to surveil people, enemies, friends, employees, whatever, and it really it sort of shone a light on this new and quite murky industry, as well as sort of telling this tale of this individual who who's fallen from you know gone from being one thing the France's Mister Privacy to being really uh, very much on the other side, um, become a cyber snooper. Then you know some of the stuff we've done again just very recently about Iranian oil being smuggled out of Iran and sold to other countries by Turkish businessmen. So, you know, we've done some really, I would say, excellent investigative work. We've been very much on the story of Ukraine, not from the front lines. That's not really a political yeah, thing. I mean, we don't send people down into the trenches and get shot at. But those second order, third order, you know, the sanctions, sanctions Exactly, Jameen. I mean, I remember you myself. On, you worked on these yeah, uh, I remember brilliantly. The, season, I remember I that, that morning on the invasion, like everyone else, we were waking up here in Brussels. Good morning from the Ukrainian capital, Kiev. Gunfire and explosions have been heard here and in the second city of Kharkiv shortly after the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, authorised a special military operation in Ukraine's Donbass region and told the Ukrainian military to lay down their weapons and go home. I was writing Playbook with Yakov, my colleague, and that sentence, oh my God, this has happened. It was an EU summit that day. And then the story here became about the EU response. Jahr für Jahr mehr als 2% des Bruttoinlandsprodukts in unsere Verteidigung investieren. This was really a speech for the history books. It's a 180 degree turn in German foreign policy. Later today, we will present a package of massive and targeted sanctions to European leaders for approval. We have decided to grant candidate status to Ukraine and Moldova. Europe. 
Thank you for making possible a new history of Ukraine, a new history of Europe, even stronger and even freer. Thank you all very much. Glory to Ukraine. And then that interaction that happened between Washington and Brussels about sanctions policy, we had all those uh, rounds of sanctions packages, the politics around that, the first, second, third sanctions package, right up until early summer when we saw Hungary breaking ranks and trying to block some of those sanctions packages. That was a huge part of coverage. But as you say, Jamil, I think it's changed everything, whether it's been financial affairs, agriculture policy, Energy is another one. We've been, our energy team have been and first and foremost on that. And of course, the political ramifications. I mean, we this Ukraine war happened when we had an imminent election in France and a, a fairly new government in Germany. And I think that's one of the reasons why the commission, in a sense, stepped up. There was that power vacuum in places like Berlin and Paris. We've heard this from the Americans that they were warning about this buildup of troops. They were warning about the possibility of war and they weren't really getting much pickup from national capitals. And this is perhaps why the EU kind of stepped up a little bit when it came to sanctions. And one of the big parts of our coverage has been Germany. And we had some great pieces by Matt Kernitschnig on this about Germany's belated realisation about Nord Stream and, and about that dependency on, on Russian gas. Some breaking news on the Nord Stream 2 pipeline that Joe had just mentioned a few minutes ago. Uh, the German chancellor saying his country will indefinitely stop the certification of the pipeline following Russian action on Ukraine. This is very, very important because Nord Stream 2 was set to double. We're joined by Clea Calcutt yes. in Paris. Clea, I mean, first of all, I mean, the, the French elections, we'll get into that in a minute. But your thoughts on the war in Ukraine and how that story has shaped things over the last year? Well, the war in Ukraine has really had quite a big effect in France because Emmanuel Macron was running ahead, you know, running for re-election when the war broke out. And, uh, you know, Emmanuel Macron took quite a leading role in trying to negotiate something with Putin. Amid growing concern worldwide about the situation in Ukraine, President Macron has been holding talks in Moscow with President Putin. Uh, the French president said he hoped discussions would begin a process of de-escalation and reduce the possibility of a Russian invasion. But and it was seen here that he was using what was happening in Ukraine as a way of trying to get re-elected to show people that they had a leader who was uh, a veteran statesman who was negotiating with Putin and Zelensky and and all of that. And I mean, of course, the French deny this and they say he was doing it because he was hoping that he might be able to stop the war and, and uh, get parties back to the table. But in the background, we also had you know, politicians who support him saying that it was it wasn't bad for the campaign. It was also helping people understand that Macron was the responsible person. And on the other hand, you had Marine Le Pen, whose, you know, affiliations to Russia are well known. And, and so that this did help. I want to ask you about Marine Le Pen's relationship with the Russian president, Vladimir Putin. Tell us about that and how big an issue that could be in the light of recent events. It would be a giant issue. Uh, if you're watching this from the perspective of Washington, it's a potentially cataclysmic issue. Uh, look, so that shaped a lot the campaign in that it was quite a muted campaign here. And a lot of people said that they really didn't have a choice when it came down to it because of this context that has sort of put a lot of pressure on people. And then in the aftermath, it was um, France's in quite a sticky, confusing position when it comes to Russia, because even though 
Uh, Emmanuel Macron says that he wants to be an exemplary NATO force, that he's, you know, battling hard for the integrity of Ukraine. It's quite clear that, you know, France doesn't want to completely close the door on Russia. You know, just recently he created, uh, Macron created controversy when he said that uh, Russia, in the case of negotiations, should have some sort of security guarantees, which didn't go down well at all in Ukraine. And uh, this has created or at least not mended a rift with Eastern Europe that still persists until today, I'd say. Yeah, I mean... Looking back myself as a journalist on the last year, one of the trends we've seen is this emergence of Central and Eastern Europe, particularly the Baltic nations and Poland, as a leading voice. I think this is one of the first times since some of these countries have joined the European Union that they have been ahead. They were the ones that were warning for some time about the threat posed by Russia. They weren't really listened to and they were proven right. And we saw that, we heard that, and we might hear a clip from that, from Ursula von der Leyen's speech, her State of the Union speech in September in the European Parliament, where she she kind of accepts that and she praises those countries for calling out and saying, essentially, we didn't listen. We should have listened to the voices inside our union, in Poland, in the Baltics, and all across Central and Eastern Europe. They have been telling us for years that Putin would not stop. And they... So that's been an interesting dynamic that has changed, especially at a time when Brussels has been locked in dispute about with some of these countries, with Poland and Hungary, about rule of law issues. They ultimately won and occupied the moral high ground here when it came to Ukraine. They were proved Except correct. Hungary, not Hungary. <laughs> yeah, particularly, yeah, as you said, with the sanctions. But they were proved correct. Poland was proved correct uh, in terms of the threat and the Baltics were too. And in terms of how many uh, refugees they took on. hit areas, And they're heading to Poland. That country has already taken in roughly 1.3 million refugees so far. I mean, we'll hear also, here's President Zelensky speaking to political. We had a political 28 dinner earlier this month. And here's what uh, he had to say. He was honoured as the most powerful person in Europe. I believe that Ukrainians will be the most influential next year as well, but already in peacetime. Thanks to everyone who supports us. Thanks you, Politico, for being always unbiased. Slava Ukraini. Uh, Jamil, could you maybe tell us a bit about Political 28, the concept of that? Yeah, this has been going since pretty much we were founded here in, in Europe nearly eight years ago. And it's an annual event, not an award ceremony. Um, we have to sort of uh, stress that. What we do is each year we consult the newsroom. The newsroom consults their sources, consults the power players in around Europe. And we come up with a list of the 28 most powerful people in Europe for the upcoming year. And uh, this year... The number one most powerful, influential person in Europe for 2023, we believe, is uh, Vladimir Zelensky, president of, of Ukraine. Yeah. I mean, just to mention as well, at that event, we heard from the European president, Roberta Metzola. Now, this is before the news emerged of this corruption bribery scandal to hit the European Parliament. But I mean, Jamil, it was it was quite interesting. Fair play. Um, Roberta Metzola attended this, even though one of our strongest stories throughout this year in Politico has been this coverage of the election, the appointment of the new Secretary General of the European Parliament. This came on the back of the resignation of Klaus Vella. He's a huge figure and a very important figure in the European Parliament. He's been around here for years. He was stepping down at the end of this year 
and a controversy arose really about his uh, successor, Alessandro Cucchetti, uh, who was working with European Parliament President Roberta Metzola in her cabinet, was essentially parachuted into that job. Now, the Parliament have pushed back on this, but I think this was a very egregious example of a kind of a backroom deal that we covered in quite a lot of detail, uh, particularly in Brussels Playbook with my, my colleague Jakob Hankavella. Yeah, we've um, we've been on this in Playbook throughout the year. The very non-transparent and somewhat troubled uh, appointment of the uh, Secretary General of the European Parliament. And we've been specifically quite uh, critical of the role of European Parliament President Roberta Metzola. But um, to give her a very lot of credit, I would say, she turned up um, at our event and took questions on this very topic. So how do you defend that process? And would you do anything different if you had to do this over? I thank you for using the word process. Uh, I am very proud about how we tackled a big change, you know. Institutions move slowly, uh, and I was faced with a decision of how to engage with the selection of a new secretary-general of a big institution, and I wanted to open it up. So we had, uh, for the first time ever, more than one candidate for the post, uh, who were treated fairly, equally, and at the end of the day, a political group of politicians took a political decision uh, over one candidate. What I would change is I would codify the rules that we, we set up, I insisted on, in order for us not to have any other civil servant in this town with three decades of experience go through what the next Secretary General of the European Parliament went through for this. Um, I was very impressed, actually, that she she was willing to show up and she was willing to defend her actions and um, made some quite good points. We had many other high-powered people in the audience, including um, a certain vice president of the parliament and member of the European Parliament, Eva Kaili, who just two days after that dinner, uh, where she hobnobbed with us and many other people, she was uh, detained in this latest corruption scandal. So it really was a, a sort of power dinner with some foreboding that we didn't know at the time. But, you know, it does remind us that we're here. We do this weekly podcast. Uh, we love hearing from our listeners. We like to tell them what's going on in the EU. But a huge part of our mandate and, and all journalists working here in Brussels is to hold these institutions to account. So it's important always to have that part of our job, as well as analysing the latest trends and developments. Thank you very much for joining us, Jamil and to Clea in Paris. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Suzanne. And that's it for this year. The podcast crew is taking a little break over the next few weeks, but we'll be back in your podcast feed on January the 5th. To make sure you don't miss that or any other episode, please follow the podcast wherever you listen. And we love to hear from our listeners with ideas for guests or topics. You can always get in touch by emailing us at podcast at politico.eu. I'm Suzanne Lynch in Brussels. Thanks this week to our editor, James Randerson, and to Julia Poloni and Ellen Bonin on production. We couldn't do without them. Today's episode was produced by our executive producer for audio, Christina Gonzalez. See you in the new year. <laughs>